Welcome to LOA Today. Walt Thiessen and Life Coach Cindy Chavez here. Today is Tuesday, October the 9th, 2018, 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Your first daily dose of happy for the day, and uh, we want your day to be off to a splendid start, so we're going to try to do that and by just getting your vibration up, by getting our vibration up. And when we get our vibration up, we feel better too, which is like the wonderful side benefit of the whole thing. Not only are we helping you, we're helping ourselves in the process. So here we are helping you. Cindy, are we helping you? Are you off to a good start today? Uh, I was sound asleep and woke up to an alarm, which I never do. So that was kind of odd because in the middle of a dream and hearing that alarm go off and waking up and, oh, it was a little difficult to wake up. And once I woke up, about took me about four or five minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm the kind of person that when I wake up, I'm like ready to spring out of bed the second I wake up. But today it wasn't like that. And um I kept thinking, part of me wanted to say, I wish I could go back to sleep, but it wasn't the truth. Like, I recognized that that thought was a habit of, you know, feeling groggy when I woke up. I really didn't want to go back to sleep. I wanted to come do the podcast. Yeah, well, good. (laughs) And so, you know, it's like recognizing sometimes when our mind goes on autopilot. Yeah. And we tell the same story over and over, whatever it is. So I'm getting better and better at that. I realized, no, I'm. Actually, why would I want to go to sleep when the podcast is this morning? Mm, yeah, because you're right. It depends what the story is. But if you, the, the story we most often tell over and over again is the one that works against us, the one that we're not feeling pretty well about. But when we tell the story that makes us feel better, the story that makes us feel well, that's the story we should be telling over and over again. That's the one we should get kind of stuck into a loop about, right? Right. That's true. That's true. We, we want to get into a, a groove and not a rut. Right. A groove, not a rut. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that works. No, yeah. So I think that when we start recognizing when we when we tell like an autopilot kind of story that right, that you're right, that's not really supporting us in the best way, we get used to sort of noticing that. Because there's always some kind of conversation going on. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's what we've been talking about with reading Neville, right, is the inner conversation. I think that this time through Neville, I've noticed that more than when I've read it before. I've noticed, um, I don't know, you know, sometimes when I read something a second time or a third time, I'll, I'll pick up something different. Uh You know, sort of like if you, if you, if you look at a, a painting or you go to an art show, you know, whatever stands out for you might, not be the thing that stands out for someone else. That's true. And, right? And so you might say, oh, I really enjoyed all of the, uh, how that artist put roses in every single painting and someone else says, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was noticing that all the women in the paintings had hats on. You know, it's like we, we notice different things. So this time around, I keep noticing how often Neville's talking about the inner conversation, the inner conversation. Well, it makes sense. That inner conversation is everything. I mean, yeah. that's that's what I've been noticing, particularly the last few days. Um, I've been dealing with, with my own repeated stories that don't serve me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in the process of dealing with them, I've been asking myself questions like, you know, wh- questions like, what what is it that is it, it's going to take for me to get out of this? Because I know I need to get into that good feeling space, right? That's That's the basic rule of thumb. And yet I'll try to climb out of it. And I find that, you know, I, I 
crawl a couple steps and I slide back down and then I'm back in the loop again thinking about the thing I don't want to think about. And so I try again and I try to climb a little bit back out. I find something to feel good about. I even get myself feeling good and then I slide back down the, the, the slope again. It's just like this, it's almost like a tug of war with myself. And I keep asking myself, why am I having these tugs of war? Why don't I just let go? You know, follow the the Abraham approach and just let go of the oars and let the stream take the boat down the stream. But nope, I insist on picking up those oars over and over again. Why do do. I do that? Well, the other thing is looking at that emotional scale and finding where we are and then recognizing if the step up is something we're avoiding. It's an interesting point because, I mean, I, I, uh, Louise and I were trying to um, work on some stuff like this the other day. And I, I asked her, well, where are you on the emotional scale? Are you, cause I knew she was in the negative range. I said, are you like, uh, you know, at fear or, or frustration or are you depressed or anger or revenge or where are you at? She says, yeah, all of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like I'll have one with everything. Please. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, so sometimes, you know, naming, naming it will help. That's true. Right? It's like sometimes it helps to say, and, and this is one of the things I like to point out and remind myself and my clients is that, you know, people are generally, at least in, in, in our society, we're taught that certain emotions are not good. Mm. Right. And That's we're, right. and a lot of times as children, we are prohibited from having those emotions. Oh, yeah. And, and so we, we grow up with this idea that it's not okay to be, you know, vengeful or angry or frustrated or, you know, some of those things you just named. It's like we, so we, we don't show them, we stuff them down and ignore them. And I think part of that is because we don't know how to express them in a healthy way. And mm. of course we don't want to go out and take revenge on somebody or we don't want to do something. We don't want to have an inappropriate display of anger or whatever. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, sure. We certainly don't want to get into a, an argument or a fight or a conflict. I mean, most of us mm-hmm. don't. So, but what I've recognized is that spending the time, because sometimes it takes a moment or two to identify what the feeling is with an actual word, like to label it and then to, express it sometimes the expression is just verbal by saying i am so frustrated right now Mm. it doesn't have to be you know punching a wall or throwing something or something inappropriate or illegal you know it can just be the willingness to say i feel really angry it doesn't Mm. have to be even shouted you know it's like but just recognizing it and owning it acknowledging it letting it be there um and letting it be recognized is sometimes enough power to make that jump to the next place um, or to talk about it to mm-hmm. where is this feeling coming from? And yeah. also, who you know, sometimes now here's something that's going to sound a little bit out there, but I had an experience of it this past couple of weeks. I, I've experienced this a lot in my life and still when it happens, sometimes it, I don't recognize it right away. And that is ha- feeling something that doesn't belong to me. Um, you hear a lot of people say that they are empaths. And I, the first time I ever recognized that 
I was feeling, I was actually, this was about eight or nine years ago. I was watching the Oscars. I was home by myself. I was happy to be home after a really busy day. I'd looked forward to watching this show and I was, I was watching it and I was in a great mood. And suddenly, all of a sudden, I felt really sad and really awful. And I couldn't figure it out. I was mm. like, where is this coming from? Like, I didn't have anything to be sad about. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could have found something, but <laughs> I was so, I was so happy that I, you know, it's like all of a sudden, and I had this recognition, this sort of aha moment of, I don't think this is me. Like, I think I'm feeling someone else's stuff here. Mm. And lo and behold, about two days later, I had a friend call me and they, they just called to talk because they said ever since that night, they had been really struggling with something emotional and feeling really sad. And I kind of put those two things together. I went, Oh, wow. Yeah. And then it happened again. Now, I'm not even saying this happens every month or something. It doesn't happen where I notice it so often. Mm -hmm. But recently I had, um, we had gone somewhere and we came home. We had a great day. Uh, I felt great. And then all of a sudden I felt, I really felt like the bottom of my right foot was on fire. I don't know how else to wow. explain it. And I was like, what is going on? I said, the bottom of my right foot feels like it's like on fire, like sunburn, but you know, I'm mm. not, my foot is not sunburned. And then I don't know how I really dealt with it. I think I just meditated until it wasn't so bad and I went to sleep. And then the next day when I woke up, I could feel that pain sort of radiating like from my hip area down into my leg and into my foot and then up. Wow. And so I was told very quickly when I described it, Oh, well that sounds like sciatica. Mm hmm. And I does. said, Oh no, like I don't want that. Right. Um, and so I meditated it away. <laughs> Good for you. Then the next day I got a text message from, from someone close to me that said, I don't think I've told you this, but I'm going in for surgery tomorrow morning uh, on my lower back. And oh, I said, wow. Oh wow. No, I did not know this. And they said, yeah, they said, I've really been struggling with sciatica. And I said, Okay, well, I'm going to keep you in my thoughts. And so, of course, I was then meditating for them as they had the surgery. And the surgery was, they, they sent me the message we talked on, I think, a Saturday, a Sunday. That had all happened with me on Friday and Saturday. On Tuesday, I spoke with them. They said, oh, the sciatica went, is completely gone. They said, I'm still feeling rough from the surgery, but the sciatica is gone. And that is so great. And I said, wow. I said, well, um, tell me about that. And they said, Oh, they said, well, I didn't talk about it much, but I had it for years and it, the pain was so intense. Sometimes I thought I was going to go insane. They said, literally my right foot would feel like it was on fire. Oh, geez. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And so I said, uh, okay, I'm going to tell you something now. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> a little weird. Um, and they said, well, it's so nice to know we're connected. Sorry that you had to <laughs> So sometimes, you know, I mean, here's the thing. We are all connected. That's true. And so sometimes um, I'll ask myself, is this mine? <laughs> right? It's like, are these emotions, am I, is this mine? This was actually a physical thing. So yeah. I didn't even think to ask about that. But my mind was blown when I heard 
um, when I heard that it was, you know, what the surgery was for. And of course I haven't had any kind of sensation or feeling or pain or anything since then. So it's completely, that was it. Your question is quite valid too. Is that mine? I mean, it, it can be yours or it can be partly yours, but there are times when like you, your example, where it's not yours at all and you just kind of tap into what somebody else is going through. Right. And you know, we were, we were talking a few minutes ago about energy and training to itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so if you're, you know, for someone that would be listening and thinking, Oh, that's just nuts. Um, <laughs> think about this. If, if you walk into a room and there's a person and especially a person you care about, but it might even be a person you don't know, but there's someone that's really struggling in some way, uh, whether they're in physical pain or emotional pain or, but you know, it's not good. They are having a really rough time to where you can notice how does that affect you? Mm-hmm. I mean, it affects us, right? Oh, it brings we the whole room down. We, either, we feel, we feel sad with them. We feel confused. We feel maybe like, Oh no, I don't know what to do. And I want to make this better. And I, I mean, we have a reaction to that. Yeah. Oh, and that's, so, and that's the norm. I mean, the exception would be if right. we walked into a room and the entire room was partying except for one person who was writhing in pain on the floor because you right. never run into that. That doesn't happen. You no, know? exactly. So, so that's that. I mean, sometimes it's not even our stuff. That's a very good point. And, and one of the things that I, I can't tell you that I've done it really consciously yet. Um, but, We've talked before about meditating and the different forms of meditation and some of the forms of meditation that I use, uh, that go back to my, you know, Buddhist practice are like Tonglen where you are meditating, um, taking on whatever someone else is going through. Mm-hmm. You are breathing it in and then breathing out, you know, the relief. So we're breathing in their struggle, whatever it is, and breathing out healing or breathing out happiness or breathing out, you know, relief of, from their pain or whatever it is. And so it's a meditation like that. So it's, it really falls into, in my, in the English language, I feel it falls into the category really of prayer, right? We're, we're, we're doing something mentally and spiritually to bring relief to someone else from their burden. So we're taking that on. And there, there are different types of meditation or prayer where we're actually um, helping someone else. And so I had the thought that, okay, even though I'm not good at this because it hasn't happened to me enough times where I recognize automatically, oh, that's not me. That's, you know, I'm picking that up from somewhere else. But I thought, you know, that's where these types of meditations come in is that when we're struggling with something, it's the recognition that, well, there are actually, unfortunately, but there are thousands of other people that are struggling with this exact same thing. It, it certainly gives a new um, perspective on the idea that everything that goes on in our lives is happening within us. Because if we're all connected, mm. that means even what's within us, we're through what's within us, we're still connected to somebody else and to everybody else. So if you can still have that kind of experience, even when you're looking within, because we're all connected, which can be a little confusing, but it's also good to know that whenever we're connected within, whenever we're in that place where we are in communication internally, and I, I strive to get there more and more often. I'm not there as often as I like, but I strive to get there. 
when I am there, there's a buffer, there's a protection there. I don't know if you, you, you experience it the same way I do, but even when I know I'm, I'm connected to somebody else and somebody else is dealing with something, if I am inside who I am, if I, that's where my attention is focused, it provides a protective layer so that I'm not adversely harmed by what the other person is going to, and I can actually be more of assistance to them and better help to them. Yes, because there's that kind of energetic boundary there. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the, the there's a truth in, in that, you know, the strongest, clearest energy in any situation mm-hmm. prevails. That's true. That's a good thing, right? too. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, yeah, so when we remember that, it it helps me anyway to not get overwhelmed by what someone else is going through so that I can help them. Mm. Yeah, and so point. I know, I think I told this story before, but when I was really struggling with insomnia, like I haven't been sleeping that great lately, but it's sort of like, um, I do sleep. I wake up a lot, but I go right back to sleep. But before a couple of years ago was the ridiculous kind of insomnia where you wake up and you're wide awake and there is no going back to sleep for like hours. And <laughs> I had been doing that probably three or four nights a week. And so I, I was just exhausted. And one night, I don't know what caused me to go there, but I, I woke up and all of a sudden I thought, well, oh my goodness, there are thousands of people all over the world right now that are struggling with insomnia. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one. I'm not right. the only person laying in the bed that can't go back to sleep. And I thought, oh, Oh my goodness, this is my opportunity to, to do Tong Lam meditation for them. Nice. To, to take this on for them. Maybe if I take it on, then they'll get one minute of sleep. You know, it's like maybe this will help one person mm-hmm. sleep. And I felt so excited, like that I had been given this huge privilege oh, and nice. honor to like help. And so I just started breathing in all of the struggles and worries and insomnia that other people were experiencing and breathing out like sweet sleep for them. Mm. And, you know, eventually I fell asleep, Yeah. Uh, but it felt really good to be able to see that as a, a useful place. That's a good thing. And, <laughs> and so, you know, in that situation, it was mine. The insomnia was mine. I was definitely dealing with insomnia, but maybe not. Right. <laughs> perhaps perhaps the some overlap. It wasn't mine. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't mine. That's true. And so the, the the other time when I was sitting there happily getting ready to, you know, I don't know, eat popcorn and watch my one of my shows that I liked, uh, the Academy Awards. I, I never hardly ever watch TV, and that is one thing I, I like to watch because I watch movies. So, and then suddenly this big cloud of sadness descends on me. Yeah, right. Um, at that time, I didn't. I didn't know it well enough to say this isn't mine. I I got the aha moment that it wasn't somehow. It must have been a higher self thing. You know, like it's like somebody whispered in my ear, this is not you. Mm-hmm. Um I still didn't know what to do with it though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that when we're struggling with something now, I mean that's often how I deal with it. I recognize that oh, maybe this is just a message. Maybe this is just a a little tap on my shoulder. Saying you feel that there are people that that need your help, they're feeling that. Wow, 
That's that's quite a gift, though, to be able to do that. And uh, I mean, we're, the going within part uh, that ties in with what we're going to be talking about with Neville today, um, from Chapter Six of his book, Awakened Imaginations. Imagination. Uh, that that tap that on the shoulder is, in my view, it's a way of reminding you when you go within and you you do this work. In this case, you do this meditation within. You put yourself first of all into that place that is safe, and when you're in that safe place, you're able to do more because giving energy to somebody else, giving love to somebody else, you know, taking somebody else's burden on and letting it go for them requires being in a safe place. It requires being in a place that feels good. And that's exactly where you went. You went to the place that felt good. You're so right. And it's, um, it's a place of empowerment Mm -hmm. instead of being, Oh, why is this happening to me? Why do I feel so sad? This is, you know, which we've all been there, right? Oh yeah. Um, instead of being there, it's that place of, Oh, it's like the teacher just called on me to be the one to help. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, some of us don't necessarily have that positive association, but I get your point. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it can be cultivated. I suppose so. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just realized that we've been like really chatting here and, and we haven't given the promos. We haven't done our promos. No, we got to get that done. So before we get into Neville in a deep way, and we're going to do that in a moment, um, yes, first of all, we want to make sure that those of you who have not yet become subscribers get encouraged to become subscribers because you get this great discussion coming to your phone every single day. Um, 11 times a week we put these things out. Sometimes we even put out special episodes like I did this past weekend. And they, they are all designed to help you feel better. Imagine getting 11 different one-hour messages coming to your phone every single day or every single week, rather, and those messages are designed for you to feel better. That means any time that you're struggling to get into that good-feeling place, you just turn on LOA Today and you listen for a bit, and then you feel better. So become a subscriber. The instructions are on the homepage at LOAToday.net. Uh, most people will know how to do it. Just, you know, they know their phone. On, on an iPhone, you go to your podcast software or the iTunes store, either one, and do a search on LOA Today. On an Android phone, uh, these days we're recommending Google Podcast app. So if you don't have a podcast app installed, go to the Play Store and download the Google Podcast app because that's the one that's really taking on the world by storm. And you'll be able to find LOAToday.net through there as well. So please become a subscriber. And then once you're a subscriber, and for all of our subscribers, start posting or keep posting out there on social media, whichever is the case with you, about listening to LOAToday.net because we want more and more people to get their daily doses of happy. We want to spread the happiness, so to speak. And you're the ones who are very effectively helping us to do that. The numbers of listeners are increasing substantially because of your efforts to say to the rest of humanity, hey, I listen to LOAToday.net. You don't even have to make a recommendation. Just say, that's what I'm doing. And in effect, the law of attraction makes the recommendation for you. So please subscribe if you're not a subscriber, and please put the word out if you are a subscriber. Yay. Very good. All right. So Neville, we've been doing, we, we've been really doing an intensive on Neville. We've done the first five chapters and picked, picked up quite a bit. We've broken down some of our barriers a little bit against, uh, you know, for those of us who are a little bit, you know, balled up against, uh, Christian type, uh, terminology and, and scripture quotes and so forth. But we figured out ways to understand what Neville's talking about that kind of translate into modern English. And that has, taken some of the bite away from that from from my perspective anyway and perhaps from the perspective of others like me who have that kind of resistance and it's been good because we found some good really good nuggets of information in what neville has to say so uh, let's find out what he's going to say in chapter six all right so you know we have been just for a, a little bit of a recap is that the two things that we hear 
so far from Neville over and over. (laughs) (laughs) One is that is the encouragement to us to, or the direction to assume the feeling of the wish fulfilled. And the other is that we need to be paying attention to our inner conversation. Mm-hmm. And he uses the example of um, forgiveness of sin. But his definition of that is that sin is missing the mark. I mean, you picture shooting at a target, shooting your arrow at a, throwing a, an arrow at a target and you miss. Mm-hmm. Or a bow and arrow, shooting at the target, you miss the target. Maybe you miss it completely. Mm. Or you miss the bullseye. And that forgiveness is making that right. So you're shooting again and hitting your target this time. So he talks a lot about aim, like the aim of man. And, and, and it's, he'll go back to forgiveness of sin and he quotes some scriptures, sometimes a lot of scriptures. And what we realize at some point is that his definition of these verses is very esoteric, not like anything that we've probably been taught so far in a regular uh, sense of Bible study or or in a church service or anything like that. Mm. So even if you do have that background, this is going to be different. Oh, yeah, quite <laughs> different. Yes. You have to kind of be prepared for something that's uh, in, in the words of Monty Python. And now for something completely different. And now for something completely different. <laughs> and he also quotes a lot of poets and philosophers so we'll see that as we go through he even quotes hermes which got me excited how did i never see that before okay so chapter six he says it is within and this is from blake from the book jerusalem Mm -hmm. Uh, rivers mountains cities villages all are human and when you enter into their bosoms you walk in heavens and earths as in your own bosom you bear your heaven and earth and all you behold Though it appears without, it is within, in your imagination, of which this world of mortality is but a shadow. I get the feeling That's, that Blake ever studied uh, quantum physics before quantum physics became a term? I don't know. I feel like Blake was just listening in on our conversation before yeah, we dove right. into the book <laughs> That's true, yeah. I mean, here we are talking about it appears without, but it's within, and that it's all human, right? It's like, wow, okay. So Neville starts here, the inner world was as real to Blake as the outer land of waking life. He looked upon his dreams and visions as the realities of the forms of nature. Blake reduced everything to the bedrock of his own consciousness. The kingdom of heaven is within you, Luke seventeen twenty one. The real man, the imaginative man, has invested the outer world with all of its properties, the apparent reality of the outer world, which is so hard to dissolve, is only proof of the absolute reality of the inner world of his own imagination. Two very important senses there. I mean, especially that first one. The real man, the imaginative man, has invested the outer world with all of its properties. Translated what the real man, the imaginative man, thought of created the outer world with all of its properties. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. That yeah, is. And then so the sec- all of the all of the things we describe mm. <laughs> we've made them that way. And then the second part 
illustration just how effectively we did that because it says the apparent reality of the outer world, which is so hard to dissolve, is only proof of the absolute reality of the inner world of his own imagination. So we create it, and now all of a sudden we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> He's like, oh, no, this thing is permanent. It's forever. It's fixed. <laughs> it's so hard to dissolve. That's right. And when we have a problem, it does seem that way, doesn't it? It certainly does. It's so hard to dissolve. It certainly does. Now, here's he, here's Neville quoting uh, John six forty four and 1030. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. I and my Father are one. Now, remember that Neville says that the father or the Christ, that they are also our imagination. Yeah, that's going that, 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 to royal a few traditional Christians, I think. Well, he says that God in us, that that's our imagination. It is the creative force within us, our imagination, mm-hmm. which is what we also deem the creator. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. It's uh, it's not what we learned in Sunday school. Most right. Of us. Um, the world which is described from observation is a manifestation of the mental activity of the observer. When man discovers that his world is his own mental activity made visible, that no man can come unto him except he draws him, and that there is no one to change but himself, his own imaginative self, his first impulse is to reshape the world in the image of his ideal. But yeah, here he comes. His, ideal, yeah, <laughs> his ideal is not so easily incarnated. In that moment when he ceases to conform to external discipline, he must impose upon himself a far more rigorous discipline, the self-discipline upon which the realization of his ideal depends. Now, this sounds to me like something we say all the time, right? Practice. Practice. That's right. And specifically, practicing within. Right. He, he, he says it in a very uh, kind of nonchalant and roundabout way, but that's what he means when he says, in that moment when he ceases to conform to external discipline. What's the external discipline? The external discipline is conforming to the way we're taught to do things and to think about things in, in the, the outer cultural world, when in fact, that's not where we're going to be able to realize the ideal. You, you can't, it's like, it's like trying to take the world that we just created and which has now become almost indissoluble and try to fix it. It, it just doesn't work. You can't fix it from outside. There's just no way to do that because it was created within. Well, and something that I think is interesting is in the paragraph before where he says, when man discovers that his world is his own mental activity made visible. Yes. Right. He says his first impulse is to reshape the world. Yeah. In the image of his ideal. Isn't that what we all do when we when we start learning that, you know, everything your experiences is a result of your thoughts? Mm, oh, yeah. We yeah. get that big aha. Oh, my goodness. So really? So I can create anything I want? I can, this can all be different for me. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's our first impulse is we are, we're going to reshape the world in, in the image of our ideal. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I see here, it says in the moment when he ceases to conform to external discipline, the part you just read, um, that that's when we, when we say, all right, I don't have to take this anymore. I don't have to have all of this stuff happening to me. I can have something better. Mm-hmm. In that moment, 
when we realize that because this stuff's hard, it's like I don't want to I don't want to do this anymore. This is hard. I want it to be easy. Um, and Neville says, well, in that moment, we have to impose upon ourselves a far more rigorous discipline. The self-discipline upon which the realization of our ideal depends. Which makes sense. It, it makes sense yeah. because, it, I mean, if, if the original world or if the original thing that's out there was created within, why would we expect that we should look anywhere else for how to change it? It has to be changed within. There's no other place to do it. He goes on to say, imagination is not entirely untrammeled and free to move at will without any rules to constrain it. In fact, the contrary is true. Imagination travels according to habit. There's an interesting phrase. Imagination travels according to habit. Well, and I feel this was my example this morning. I woke up. I felt really groggy. And I automatically wanted to say, oh, I wish I could go back to sleep. And I calmed myself and said, no, you don't. You, It's a podcast day and you rather get up. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> well, so interesting because I felt like that was a habit. Mm. I felt like it was on me on autopilot. Yeah. So it's interesting that he says imagination travels according to habit. Imagination has choice, but it chooses according to habit. I love the word you chose too, autopilot, because that's exactly what autopilot is. It's habit. Right? Yeah. Um, we've talked about this before, the importance of kind of shaking things up sometimes, right? Like if you, if you drive home from work, I don't because I work from a home office, but I think the majority of people travel to and from and mm. so if you drive home from work go a different route i mean shaking things up and why because it changes our neural patterns that's right and this is what neville's actually talking about i mean he doesn't use words he's not dr joe dispenza so he doesn't use words like neural net right but <laughs> he's that's, talking about the same thing he is yeah he's just doing yeah. it a little bit more uh, philosophically in a sense but it's the same topic Imagination has choice, but it chooses according to habit. Awake or asleep, man's imagination is constrained to follow certain definite patterns. It is this benumbing influence of habit that man must change. If he does not, his dreams will fade under the paralysis of custom. Good word. Benumbing. Benumbing, benumbing. influence I of like habit. That. Yeah. I like that one. Because isn't that yeah. what we do? We numb ourselves. Yeah. How, how much of life is do, is spent by people devoting their time to numbing? Oh, gosh. Because people experience so much pain, psychically, physically, emotionally, whatever. They're always looking to numb it. Oh, that's why people drink. That's why people do drugs. That's why people abuse. That's why people you know, do all kinds of stuff that isn't terribly healthy for themselves or others. But they keep doing it over and over again because it's numbing. Yeah. Well, and it's also, we talked about this morning about stuffing feelings down. Yeah. And not wanting to go there if the feeling is something that we've been conditioned to recognize as bad. And so, I mean, I don't even think you have to use drugs or alcohol to numb out. Uh, people use TV, people yeah. over exercise, yeah. people, I mean, people do all kinds of things. Sometimes it's not even anything that's, you know, necessarily detrimental it's uh it's a distraction mm -hmm. right it's like they we when we don't want to deal with something we just 
numb it somehow by getting involved in something else. So Neville is saying that it's this pattern that has to change because if it, if it doesn't change, our dreams will fade. Interesting thing too. I did something yesterday that I might previously have, um, grouped with the idea of numbing, but I actually now would group it more with meditation and meditation that I, I would say the difference between meditation and numbing numbing is about trying to, uh, cover something up to, to, you know, block something to block a pain, mm-hmm. to block a discomfort of some kind. Whereas meditation is about releasing it, which is not really the same thing. And my illustration is what I did yesterday. Yesterday I was in kind of a rough place. I knew I needed to get out of it. Where I was physically, I couldn't find a way to do that. So I made an excuse for myself that I, we needed a box of cereal. And I drove to the nearest Walmart to buy a box of cereal. Now, did we need that box of cereal that badly? Absolutely not. There was no <laughs> need for that cereal. We, that could have waited a few days or whatever. Not a big deal. But it was an excuse to get out of the house. And when I went to the Walmart, I went immediately to where the cereal aisle was. I grabbed the box of cereal. And then you know what I did, Cindy? I spent the next half hour walking all around the inside perimeter of the store, like about five or six times, as like a walking meditation just to calm myself down, just mm, to just mm-hmm. to release myself from the, the insanity of what I had previously been dealing with. And it worked. And it wasn't numbing. It was just releasing. It was relieving. Now, Yeah, that's a good point and a good distinction to yeah. make is that sometimes we need to allow ourselves whatever process uh it takes to to process things because that's another thing that we don't always do we get so busy we don't process emotional things in this it sounds case, to me like that was just your you you were processing everything that was going on i and, was processing yeah. it and I, and I was literally letting go go of it i mean the reason i chose to walk around uh the interior outside uh wall of the store so to speak uh, you know, just walking on the, the farthest walk I could within the store was I knew that throughout that walk, I would be running into nothing that was troubling me. So uh-huh. it would just be an opportunity to just decharge, let the charge out, you know, and that was it. That was the whole goal. I, w- I wasn't actually doing a whole lot of processing. I mean, there, to a certain extent I was because, you know, your mind gets going when you're when you're doing anything like that. But, and you were moving your body. But I was moving my body. Exactly. I was just taking steps to just kind of release, just let it go. Like, I don't have to focus on anything right now because there's nothing here I need to focus on. I'm certainly not here to buy any of this stuff. And the shoppers, I'm just oblivious to them because, you know, they're, they're just shopping. You know, there's nothing to get worked up about. There's nothing to get excited about. There's not, it's just, here's an opportunity to just walk and just relax. And the reason I didn't walk outside, by the way, is we were in the middle of a misty rain and that was not fun to walk in. So I went to the store instead. <laughs> Well, I think that all of it is part of the process of releasing. Yeah. You know, if you watch an animal that goes through something stressful, they shake. They shake. That's right. Dogs and cats especially. Yeah, they just big shake, right? (laughs) Right. They just get rid of it. (laughs) Throw it off, right? (laughs) Which is a good thing. I love this. Uh, And now here's... Here's how he uses this scripture right in the middle of his paragraph, which he says, imagination, which is Christ in man. See, told you. There he goes, right? There it is. 
is not subject to the necessity to produce only that which is perfect and good. It exercises its absolute freedom from necessity by endowing the outer physical self with free will to choose to follow good or evil, order or disorder. Choose this day whom you whom ye will serve. But after the choice is made and accepted so that it forms the individual's habitual consciousness, then imagination manifests its infinite power and wisdom by molding the outer sensuous world of becoming in the image of the habitual inner speech and actions of the individual. So I think we need a little translation here, or retranslation, kind of reminding ourselves, because yep. you, you made the point, uh, there it is again, Christ, which is Christ in man. So let, let's take the, these last three paragraphs here and turn them into modern English. <laughs> so this is interesting to me. Uh, he Again, yes, he says that, Christ in us is is our imagination. He says it's not subject to the necessity to produce only that which is perfect and good. Okay, so he's telling us that our imagination can go either way. We can choose what we can choose whatever we want. Our imagination has freedom to choose to follow good or evil, order or disorder. Some people would look at my desk and see that my imagination has chosen disorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we can um, all identify with that one to one degree or another. Maybe not Wendy Dillard. She's always neat, but you know, most people. <laughs> some areas of my house are so neat and tidy and then other areas like my desk can get really out of hand. And I, you know, of course I always think about, was it Albert Einstein that said a messy desk is a sign of genius? I go, oh, okay, I'll just go with that. It feels better that. that way, right? <laughs> So he says to choose, to choose where we're going to point that wand, right? But after the choice is made and accepted so that it forms the individual's habitual consciousness. Now, I want to say, pay attention, habitual. Uh, then imagination manifests its infinite power and wisdom by molding the outer sensuous world of becoming in the image of the habitual inner speech and actions of the individual. So it has to become a habit. This thing that we want to create, the inner story that we're telling, it has to become a habit. The choice that we make when we're choosing what we want to create, it's got to be those thoughts and images and inner conversation must become habitual. That because habit we already talked about it. Imagination travels according to habit. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And, and so what we're really talking about when we, when we talk about being deliberate creators, when we talk about uh, refocusing on what we want and what, not on what we don't want, we're really talking about trying to establish a new habit. And that's a little different from the way many of us start out trying to practice this stuff. Like I'll, I'll see something on Facebook from somebody who's having trouble manifesting something. And they'll talk about how, you know, they, they spent the, uh, five minutes or an hour or a day or whatever, you know, getting into the good feeling place and they're feeling good about it and they're imagining all the stuff they like about it. And that was three months ago. And then it didn't show up. And it, the first thought that goes through my mind is, well, what'd you do for the rest of the three months? Because that counts too. <laughs> See what you're saying. That counts too. That's part of the habit, right? If you if you just establish a habit on day one and then spend the next forty five days doing nothing like that habit, where'd the habit go? 
Right. And that's part of what I see is the problem here is that we're not, we're not completely telling the new, the new story when we're still checking to see if it's happened. Yeah. It hasn't shown up. We're keeping score, right? (laughs) Right. So to realize, let's see, I don't want to skip anything. Okay. To realize his ideal, man must first change the pattern, which his imagination has followed. Habitual thought is indicative of character. The way to change the outer world is to make the inner speech and action match the outer speech and action of fulfilled desire. So one of the, one of the things I noticed there, or one of the things that that little line reminds me of is that story that I think I've heard maybe Mike Dooley tell about a friend that was a martial artist, uh, in a competitive way and would go to contests where he would compete and that he had a trophy case and that before he would leave to go to a contest or a competition that he would find the space in the trophy case where he was going to put the new trophy and he would make that space and make sure everything was clean and dusted off and it was all ready to go there when he brought it home. So, I'm like, okay, he, his outer actions are matching his, his inner speech, which is, I'm, I've already won this thing. Yeah. My victory has already happened. What, what he, what he is describing there, he's, he kind of is skipping over, uh, the important part, which is to feel it, to experience it in your mind that that's what's going to happen. And yes, I've just made space for it. And here's what I've made space for. And then imagining what it is that he was going to do. But he implies that. He, he certainly suggests that's what's going to go on. And- well, he talks a, a lot in his writings, and we've read some of it before, about, um, yes, assuming the feeling of the wish fulfilled, mm-hmm. and then allowing our imagination to bring us some kind of scenario that would naturally follow our wish being fulfilled. It was one of the things that, that I said is when, whenever I'm creating um, more money, the thing that I like to imagine that would naturally follow is maybe I'm writing a big check to a charity that I like to support or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that's the part that's in the imagination. So this was the outer action of what he imagined. I can imagine that that would be the answer to a question, right? It's like, oh, so when you win this thing, yes, I'm going to win this thing. I have a competition tonight and I'm going to win it. What will you do after that? How will we know? Because I'm going to come home with a trophy. <laughs> it reminds me of that silly commercial I used to run. You just won the competition. What are you going to do? I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> oh, I don't know that one. Oh, that went, that ran for quite some time. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to put my trophy in the trophy case. And the action was get the trophy case ready. Right? Mm-hmm. So the way to change the outer world is to make the inner speech and action match the outer speech and action of fulfilled desire. Our ideals are waiting to be incarnated. But unless we ourselves match our inner speech and action to the speech and action of fulfilled desire, they are incapable of birth. Inner speech and action are the channels of God's action. He cannot respond to our prayer unless these paths are offered. Now, there's a thing about Neville right there, because he uses 
um, what I would call traditional religious speech patterns. And mm-hmm. there's one of them right there. He says, um, inner speech and action are the channels of God's action. He cannot respond to our prayer unless these paths are offered. And yet he has a rather peculiar definition of what God is. Right. He's going to tell you that he is your imagination. <laughs> yeah. So so you read that. It's almost like you do this double take. Like, what? I, I feel like I just got whiplashed. <laughs> right? I know. It does happen. The outer behavior of man is mechanical. It is subject to the compulsion applied to it by the behavior of the inner self. And old habits of the inner self hang on till replaced by new ones. So wouldn't you say that those old habits that he's talking about are thought habits? Well, sure. All habits are yeah. thought habits when you really come well, I mean, down if, to if it. If they're habits of the inner self, they have to be habits of thought, habits of belief, and the story that we're telling about our identity. Well, even if they're external habits, all habits originate with a thought. Mm-hmm. You know, so even if you establish the habit of, you know, walking without thinking about it, it started with a thought that very first time when you were, you know, eight months old or whatever, or 10 or 12 months or whatever it was, and you decided to try to stand up, you did that through some very carefully worked out thought. You know, you, you, you wanted to make sure you didn't fall, but you wanted to make sure you could get up because you were really enthusiastic about being able to move on your own and you saw the big people could move on their own and they did it with their legs and you were going to do it with your legs. You worked the whole thing through with your thoughts. Later, after you did it for a long period of time, it became habitual, but it started as a thought. Well, he says right there, the outer behavior of man is mechanical. It's subject to the compulsion applied to it by the behavior of the inner self. That's how it happens, yeah. It's a peculiar property of the second or inner man. Second or inner man, my goodness. (laughs) The higher, wider self, is that it? I guess. It is a peculiar property of the second or inner man that he gives to the outer self something similar to his own reality of being. Any change in the behavior of the inner self will result in corresponding outer changes. The mystic calls a change of consciousness death. By death, he means not the destruction of imagination and the state with which it is fused, but the dissolution of their union. So that's pretty esoteric. (laughs) Well, I know the scriptures that he's speaking of, let's keep going because I think it's going to unfold itself. Fusion is union rather than oneness. Thus, the conditions to which that union gave being vanish. I die daily, said Paul to the Corinthians. Blake said to his friend, Crab Robinson, there's nothing like death. Death is the best thing that can happen in life. But most people die so late and take such an unmerciful time in dying. God knows their neighbors never see them rise from the dead. To the outer man of sense, who knows nothing of the inner man of being, this is sheer nonsense. But Blake made the above quite clear when he wrote in the year before he died, William Blake, one who was very much delighted with being in good company, born 28th November 1757 in London, and has died several times since. (laughs) Okay. Blake had a peculiar sense of humor, among other things, but he also had a point. Well, so when I read this, the way I understand it is because one of the things that that I've done and, and have helped clients to do is to step into a different identity. 
And I think that's what that is. There's a lot of, there are a lot of verses. I don't know if he's going to use them here, but that talk about that, that talk about putting off the old man. Um, I think it's an identity thing where we become the person that has those things we want, that has experienced the things we want to experience. We step into that identity. You know, I told the story about the woman that said over and over, I'm a survivor. Yeah. That was her identity. Yeah, that's true. And she was so, she was so committed to the identity of being a survivor that she kept having things come into her life that she had to survive. Instead of being a victor <laughs> or instead of being someone who's like you said, a thriver, mm-hmm. um, we're all going to experience things that are uncomfortable at times, but it doesn't have to become our identity. That's it. In a nutshell, you, you just summarized it beautifully. We will experience things that are uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to become our identity. That's really good. So let's see where he goes here after Blake. Um, when man has the sense of Christ as his imagination, he sees why Christ must die and rise again from the dead to save man, why he must detach his imagination from his present state and match it to a higher concept of himself if he would rise above his present limitations and thereby save himself. There it is again, where he he's playing with words and, and he messes with my mind when he does it. Because you, you described earlier how, for him, um, Christ or Christ within or all that kind of thing is the imagination. And he says, when man has the sense of, if I replace the words, of imagination as his imagination, and I start boggling when I read that, they said, then he sees why imagination must die and rise again from the dead to save man. And saving man means basically taking on the new identity. So translate all of that. He has to keep imagining new things over and over again in order to move on to the next round of identity that he's going to be in. And, and, and right. there's a piece when, of me that says, well, why the hell didn't he say that in the first place? <laughs> now, see, I read that, I read that paragraph and thought it was pretty easy to, to get. Um, I might, I might have my Neville decoder ring on today because so where, where do I order that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I understand that I love, I actually love this paragraph. This is why we must detach our imagination from our present state and match it to a higher concept so that we can rise above these limitations that we're seeing. That's how we save ourselves. And that's a much more clear way of saying it, I think. He goes on to say, here's a lovely story of a mystical death, (laughs) (laughs) which was witnessed by a, quote, neighbor. Okay. Okay. I have no idea what this is going to be. I don't remember this chapter. So last week, writes the one who rose from the dead. A friend offered me her home in the mountains for the Christmas holidays as she thought she might go east. She said she would let me know this week. We had a very pleasant conversation, and I mentioned you and your teaching in connection with a discussion of Dunn's experiment with time, which she had been reading. Her letter arrived Monday. As I picked it up, I had a sudden sense of depression. However, when I read it, she said I could have the house and told me where to get the keys. Instead of being cheerful, I grew still more depressed. So much so, I decided there must have been something between the lines, which I was getting intuitively. 
I unfolded the letter and read the first page through. And as I turned to the second page, I noticed she had written a postscript on the back of the first sheet. It consisted of an extremely blunt and heavy-handed description of an unlovely trait in my character, which I had struggled for years to overcome, and for the past two years, I thought I had succeeded. Yet here it was again, described with clinical exactitude. I was stunned and desolated. I thought to myself, what is this letter trying to tell me? In the first place, she invited me to use her house, as I've been seeing myself in some lovely home during the holidays. In the second place, nothing comes to me except I draw it. And thirdly, I've been hearing nothing but good news. So the obvious conclusion is that something in me corresponds to this letter, and no matter what it looks like, it is good news. <laughs> I reread the letter, and as I did so, I asked, what is, there, what is there here for me to see? And then I saw it. It started out. After our conversation of last week, I feel I can tell you, dot, dot, dot. And the rest of the page was as studded with whirs and wuzzes as currants in a seed cake. <laughs> a great feeling of elation swept over me. It was all in the past. The thing I had labored so long to correct was done. I suddenly realized that my friend was a witness to my resurrection. I whirled around in the studio chanting, it's all in the past, it's done, thank you, it's done. I gathered all my gratitude up in a big ball of light and shot it straight to you, and if you saw a flash of lightning Monday evening shortly after six, your time, that was it. <laughs> now, instead of writing a polite letter, because it's the correct thing to do, I can write giving sincere thanks for her frankness and thanking her for the loan of her house. Thank you so much for your teaching which has made my beloved imagination truly my savior. Interesting story. <laughs> interesting story. That is an interesting story. I like the way she recognized that her friend was writing in the past tense instead of being upset because, see, she went back and said, wait, I've worked on all of these things. I've only thought of good news. I've imagined myself in a beautiful home for the holidays. Like, this has to still be a good thing. Apparently, she also had a little bit of sensitization left because she was still, before she even read it, sensitized to the fact that there was going to be a reference to the thing she'd been working right. on getting rid of all this time. So there was still a little right. bit left. But because she had made a habit of doing that work all that time, the habit had paid off. The habit had turned into the kind of change that she'd been hoping for. And so this was both one last opportunity to desensitize the last bit and to celebrate the fact that she'd done it. She got through it. She did it. Well, right. And I think that, that that little last bit that you're talking about, um, that's our opportunity to make that choice. Mm. Very good point. And yeah. she did it, right? She was like, she no, that's not, that's not who I am anymore. I've been done with that. I and unfortunately, that's... we're done with this because we're out of time. <laughs> but this has been good. Before we go, Cindy, how does somebody who needs a little private coaching reach out to you? Uh, they can reach out to me at my website, cindychavez.com, C-I-N-D-I-E-C-H-A-V-E-Z.com. All right. Well, we'll be talking again tomorrow morning. Yes, we will. And uh, it's Wendy Dillard this afternoon, so look forward to that. We hope that we'll hear and see from you later on in every single episode here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye.